As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I love the holiday season. I love Christmas decorations, and nobody decorates better than Kat does. Aw, that's very sweet. And she's also very sensitive to how I don't want to put Christmas decorations away. Well, I don't think I'm the sensitive one. I think that... You are the sensitive one because you don't want me to put the decorations away. Yeah, that's what I mean. You're sensitive to my not wanting to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's just that over the past few years, it seems like right after Christmas, you immediately start putting the decorations away. Mm -hmm. And to me, it feels like your own personal war on Christmas. You're killing Christmas. Come on now. I think you're being a little bit dramatic. Well, this year you've been a little gentler. I've tried to do it discreetly. (laughs) She waits until I leave the room and then she quickly puts some things away and hopes that I don't notice that they're gone. I appreciate that. That's very thoughtful of you. Thank you. And it's way fun for me. It wouldn't be easier to just do it and get it out of the way. This is is much better. You do love me. (laughs) You know, it's not getting put away, though, is my beautiful new kitchen mixer. Kat's been really into baking bread lately, so I got her a mixer. I love it. It's beautiful. And I got you scalp exfoliator. So (laughs) You know, it would be a great Christmas gift and practical Mm. burial plots. Yeah. I remember my parents did that for each other one year. They bought each other a grave. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? (laughs) (laughs) And that leads right into what I'm going to talk about. Okay. Uh, It's been said that the only people without problems are those in cemeteries. (laughs) But is that true? In the city of London in the early 1800s, it was a sign of status to be entombed in an above ground mausoleum. Oh, are we talking about people who can get kicked out of their Final resting places? Not directly. I mean, I touch on that a little bit, but that's not the thrust of this story. Okay. But yeah, that's weird, isn't it? (laughs) It was a sign of status to be entombed in an above ground mausoleum. Only the wealthy, the super upper crust society, the aristocrats could afford such opulence. 
But it seemed as though someone or something was targeting these above-ground crypts in the mid-1800s. It was not uncommon. In fact, it was almost an everyday occurrence during these times. When uh, cemetery workers would arrive in the morning, they would often find destroyed caskets and the remains of its tenant strewn about. Oh, no. It was a curious and gruesome scene. Bears? Bears. <laughs> the scene was repeated time and again. The victims' graves were vandalized. Unearthed graves, huh? Yeah. Interesting. And it seems that the victims' graves that were vandalized in this manner were only those of the well-to-do. Those that were entombed in expensive above-ground stone mausoleums. Well, wouldn't they have the good stuff? They would have the good stuff, you would think. In the 19th century in England, the way they cared for their dead was really not anything to be proud of, especially in the early 1800s, when the death count was so high because of plagues and war and disease, there just wasn't enough ground to bury all the corpses. Remember, at the time, most of the cemeteries were just church graveyards. Mm. Uh, that were used for internment. It got to a point when the church graveyards were so completely filled that the coffins, they started stacking them one on top of another, sometimes in holes that were as deep as 20 feet. In many cases, the top coffin would kind of poke through the ground (laughs) during the first rain. It was so close to the surface. And the coffins themselves often didn't hold just one body. Oh. Sometimes more than one. The bodies were often cut into pieces to make room for new body parts. And when they couldn't fit all the pieces back inside the coffins, the uh, grave diggers would take the leftover body parts and just kind of strew them about. No. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of um, Tim Robbins' character in Shawshank Redemption. When he's shaking the shaking, pebbles out of his yeah, pant leg. Exactly. <laughs> But instead of pebbles, it would be a scapula. So in the 1830s, the city of London decided something had to be done. So they passed a law which gave private investors the right to finance one of the, quote, magnificent seven garden-like cemeteries that would be built in and around the outskirts of uh, the city of London. So it was like an advertising opportunity? Yeah, kind of like the sun-kissed fiesta bowl. Um, No, I don't know. I I think that they thought that if people bought the land and it was a commercial venture, then they wouldn't have to deal with the upkeep and that sort of thing. Oh. But because... Because it was a commercial venture, the investors had the right to sell the burial plots and to fix the prices. So if you wanted a proper, decent burial in any of these, you had to have money. You had to have a lot of money to be buried in one of these garden cemeteries. It was a privilege that only royals, aristocrats and uh, celebrities of the day could afford. It only took a decade before these garden cemeteries were full of dead rich guys. One in particular, not a dead rich guy, but a cemetery, sat atop a hill in the northern part of London. It's called the Highgate Cemetery. And when it opened on May 26, 1839, it was meant to be the capital's main burial ground. Simple plots were expensive, but if you wanted to be uh, entombed in an above-ground mausoleum, you really had to be one of the super rich of the day. At the time, Victorian aristocrats in London, you might remember we talked about this, they were obsessed with the culture of ancient Egypt. Right. We've talked about the mummy unwrapping parties where they would buy a mummy and bring it into London and then have all their friends over and get drunk and undress him or her. 
Mm-hmm. Egyptian artifacts were stolen and smuggled into England and then sold to the highest bidder. Much of the fascination began during the post-Napoleonic wars in Egypt and Syria between 1798 and 1801. It's around the time that they were eating mummies too, and right? They were, yes, mummy, mummy medicine. Buildings as well as art were greatly influenced by the Egyptian culture during these times, and the design of above-ground mausoleums was no exception. In fact, in Hightower Cemetery, there's what is known as Egyptian Avenue. We're going to rock down to Egyptian Avenue. And even today, it's an awe-inspiring sight walking through the magnificent gateway to the Egyptian Avenue, which leads directly onto the Street of the Dead. This is a shady alley which contains 16 family vaults. It looks almost like a street of terraced houses covered in moss. Inside each brick-lined vault, there is a shelf room that holds 12 different coffins. This is the resting place of some of the richest people, the richest of the rich, the select few of over 160,000 people that are buried in Highgate. See, that sounds just really cool. It is really cool. And at the time, it was all the rage to be entombed in a above-ground Egyptian-inspired mausoleum. However, this is where most of the destroyed coffins and body parts would be found. Oh, no. One cemetery employee reported that uh, he arrived early one morning and walked through the Egyptian Avenue area. He saw at first what he thought was a dead animal, but was stunned to find as he went inside the mausoleum that these were pieces of a putrefied corpse that had been entombed less than a month prior. The beautiful Egyptian-style sarcophagus that contained the body had been broken both on the top and the sides. It had... uh, Sustained pretty heavy damage. Was it just theft? That's one of the first things they thought. It happened again and again over the next few years. And it seemed as though this street of the dead was targeted by someone or something. And they did at first think it was uh, grave robbers. But nothing of any value was ever taken. And then they thought maybe it was vandals who resented the fact that only the rich could afford to be buried or entombed in such a lavish way. Sure, that would be my second guess. While their loved ones were and family members were, were stacked up 20 deep in overcrowded church graveyards. So that makes sense. But then there were those who thought that perhaps this was some sort of an Egyptian curse. A pharaoh's curse that had been brought down on the occupants of these tombs for stealing their culture. However, the answer is a lot more scientific in nature. The laws that were put into place in London in those days clearly instructed that any and every above-ground mausoleum could only contain coffins that were completely and fully enclosed with lead. This was to stop, of course, foul smells and poisonous gases from, from leaking out. You didn't need that if you were buried underground, but if you were above ground, you had to be buried in these special lead-lined coffins. That's a good thought, but it didn't work out real well because usually within a short amount of time, the body starts to decompose. And because the coffin or the crypt was completely sealed and lined in lead, putrid gases would build up inside, literally creating a pressure cooker. It's like when the trash mountain in Herman blew up. Yes, there's a, there was a landfill in Maine where they uh, were trying to fix a rubber membrane that sealed in an old part of the landfill. And some guy thought it would be a good idea to seal it up with an acetylene torch. And uh, that, of course, ignited methane gas, and it blew the landfill up. That was a fun day. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't live far from that, and mm. it just smelled awful for, well, the entire winter. It was just, it was terrible. Oof. According to an article in Vintage News, the executive director of the Funeral Consumers Alliance, Josh Slocum, says, quote, when you seal up a body in an environment that locks up heat and humidity, bacteria takes over. You're going to rot regardless. It doesn't matter if you're sealed or not. But the problem is how unpleasant the consequences can be when you seal it up and deprive the body of air circulation and dehydration. These containers had no adequate way for gas to exit. On occasion, the caskets would simply burp a little bit under pressure, just maybe knocking the cover of the casket askew. Okay. And, and that would be unsettling enough, I would think, for a cemetery worker going in to check to make sure everything was okay and the, and the casket lid was pushed aside <laughs> a little bit. But in extreme cases, caskets would explode and violently this would not only destroy the casket, but blow body parts all over the immediate area. And that's what people were, were experiencing. Wow. And it was not uncommon. And in the day, they didn't really know, at least at first, what was causing this. I imagine this was pretty unsettling for gravediggers who had encountered the scenes. Uh, not only the body parts hanging off the edges of the tomb, but the vaults appearing to have been opened from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. They were, of course, able to eventually confirm that the fully sealed caskets and decomposing corpses is what was causing these explosions. You've got to have a valve. And that's what they began doing. <laughs> they started drilling small holes in the caskets and sticking little pipes in there so the gas would escape through the pipes. And then the gas would be lit by a flame as it exited through the pipe. That's kind of romantic. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a, a nice thought? Like the, the flame of their, their their life flame can't be extinguished. I've been well, watching a lot of Survivor. I mean, it, it would extinguish eventually. Yeah, it wasn't an, an eternal flame. It uh, actually would burn out after about three weeks. Uh, that's how long it took for the gas to escape. It must have been a pain in the ass to have to keep going up there and relighting it, though. <laughs> but probably not as bad as picking up putrid pieces of corpses after it exploded. Today... Technology has advanced, of course, to a point where mausoleums are constructed with their own drainage systems. It's not uncommon nowadays, like in churches, vaults at churches, to see workers tapping the coffins to decompress the gas and drain out fluids. And even though these precautions are taken, it doesn't completely prevent coffins from occasionally burping. And in some cases, they still explode. Oh, because for a while, it was really popular to sell hermetically sealed coffins mm. with the idea of telling the loved ones, the elements aren't going to get inside. It preserves the remains and blah, blah, blah. But it's a pressure cooker in the making. So the modern funeral industry has developed what they call burping coffins. These are protective structures that rely on a permaseal to protect the body but allow the gases to escape. They can't sell them. It's In fact, it's illegal to sell them, saying that it's going to preserve the body indefinitely, but it's kind of like a compromise between the two. Well, it's like, it's like Tupperware. Yes, very much <laughs> like Tupperware. Got to burp the seal. A quickly growing option that combats the gassing problem is, and we've touched on this before, the biodegradable Capsula Mundi, which is an egg-shaped organic casket, which the corpse or ashes 
can be buried inside. It provides nutrients to a tree planted above it. Helping to grow a tree seems to be a far better option for a body than exploding and requiring people to scrub you off the walls of a mausoleum. Mm. I like that idea. Could we be in the same egg and and feed the same tree? Because that seems nice to me. That would be romantic, wouldn't it? Or... I'm not putting you in a cannon. (laughs) Just my ashes. And just fire them out over a garden somewhere. And that'll fertilize the garden. And then when the cukes are ripe, you can eat me. Oh, jeez. My information came from Vintage News, Wikipedia, How Stuff Works, and the Washington Post. And now, that thing in the middle. In 2005, Nicolas Cage made the movie Lords of War. The producers of the film bought 3,000 AK-47 rifles because it was cheaper to buy real guns and resell them later than to buy props. They also rented tanks that were only available for a few months of the shoot because the source was planning on selling them to Libya. Here at Box Laboratories, we're working on new podcast projects so confidential, even we don't know what they are. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got a message from David. I just heard the letter about Fort Wayne and the Falcons. I work on the 23rd floor in a building where... They nest. Yeah, we have talked about how turkey buzzards have taken over downtown Orlando, (laughs) and apparently falcons have done the same thing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, it's not abnormal to see pieces of birds drop by our windows (laughs) or find bird remnants outside on the ground. They're beautiful creatures, though. This is a picture of one outside our office window, and it's like a close-up photo of this beautiful bird. Literally taken like three feet from the bird. I want to snuggle this bird. I'm sorry, I just dropped my phone. I want to snuggle this bird. You should never snuggle a falcon. That's probably not good for them. Thank you so much, David. You got a story for me, love. You know I do. In 2006, the remains of a 16th century woman were discovered among the medieval plague victim mass grave. Oh, here we go. Two cemetery stories. I thought that's why I thought it was interesting when you started. Very. Yeah. This doesn't have anything to do with bears, though. Um, <laughs> many of the people unearthed in this mass grave were victims of the Venetian plague of 1576. Was that one of the bubonic plagues? The Black Death? The Windy City? The Big Apple? Bean Town? <laughs> what happened? I don't know. What happened just now? <laughs> <laughs> The site is two miles northeast of Venice and was used as a sanatorium for plague sufferers. Now, as I said, it was found in a mass grave, but this body was a bit different. 
The woman's jaw had been forced open by a brick. What? This was an exorcism technique used on suspected vampires in Europe at the time. And she was buried with plague victims. Yes. All right. You've got my attention. Go ahead. Now, the Black Death first arrived in Europe in 1348. And in Venice, Venice was hit particularly hard by communicable diseases. They had two quarantine stations established to keep the diseased and the potentially diseased away from the living. Um, So they had the Lazaretto Vecchio, the old quarantine, which was established first in 1423 as a plague hospital in quarantine. And then the Lazaretto Nuevo, the new quarantine that was built later as kind of a way station for incoming ships and cargo where like crews of boats and goods and stuff could go kind of like as a little mini quarantine situation. Just in case uh, they had signs of sickness, they'd have a place to put those people. Now, Matteo Barini, who's an anthropologist from the University of Florence, said that this discovery on the small island of Lazaretto Nuevo in Venice supported the medieval belief that vampires were behind the spread of plagues like the Black Death. Belief in vampires was rampant in the Middle Ages, mostly because of a misunderstanding of how things work. (laughs) That's always the case. It really is. Decomposition was not very well understood. And so when you're dealing with mass graves that are revisited over and over and over again, you're seeing things, changes, movement, so on and so forth, that are very confusing to someone who doesn't understand what's going on. You're seeing the corpse's skin shrinking and pulling back, so it looks like hair and nails are growing. Um, You see the human stomach decaying, which releases a dark purge fluid that looks like blood coming from the mouth. You're seeing the shrouds used to cover the faces of the dead um, decayed by bacteria in the mouth, revealing the corpse's teeth, so it looks as though they've chewed their way through the shroud. I remember reading an article about how Uh, In many cases in the 19th century, tuberculosis was misinterpreted as vampirism because they would exhume a body. The body, of course, had been pale Mm -hmm. from uh, tuberculosis. Um, And also they would be coughing up blood. Right. And when they would exhume these bodies, there would be signs of blood, still like fresh blood on their mouth. And so they would assume, well, they're getting up and walking around and eating people. Because that seems like the most logical answer. What? (laughs) No. Bears. Vampires in some regions became known as shroud eaters. And that was actually a specific type of vampire. Now, according to this theory, to actually stop the vampire from tootling out of its grave and spreading more pestilence and um, eating people, uh, you've got to remove the shroud from its mouth and put something that's not edible in there. So as I said, a shroud eater is a different sort of vampire. That usually doesn't tootle around the city snacking on voluptuous victims. But instead, they're found inside their grave. They're like an undead corpse that uh, are known for making hideous chewing sounds thought to cause death and destruction from a distance. There's actually a manuscript called The Chewing Dead 
uh, that had helpful tips for those facing the walking or chewing dead and prescribed practical treatments like putting a brick in their mouth. Being attacked by a regular vampire is bad enough, but what if you get one of those chewing ones that chews with its mouth open? Oh, That'd yeah. be awful. Yeah. I'd put a brick in their mouth in a hurry. So these chewing dead are spreading the plague and then feasting on those plague victims because they can't go out and get those healthy necks. I see. So when mass graves were being revisited, obviously, as I said, the grave diggers are coming across these decomposing remains and they're kind of freaking out. So they wanted to prevent this vampire from ravaging the city further with plaguey business. So this discovery of this woman with the brick in her mouth marked the first time archaeological remains had been interpreted as those of an alleged vampire. Barini told Reuters by telephone, this helps authenticate how the myth of vampires was born. Part of the process of examining these remains involved paleonutritionists pulverizing some of the woman's remains. And they discovered that the woman had eaten mostly vegetables and grains, suggesting a lower class, not vampire diet. And DNA did... (laughs) DNA analysis did reveal that the woman was European um, and that she was probably between 61 and 71 years old. That's a pretty old person. That's a pretty old person. The, Most women didn't days. didn't reach that advanced age in the 16th century. Now, it wasn't like crazy old because, again, we know that the average age was so low because infant mortality was so high. Right. So it wasn't like, whoa, old, but pretty old. Yeah. And Older women were often accused of being witches or vampires (laughs) or whatever, because often older women were seen as sad and lonely Mm -hmm. um, uh, because oftentimes their family had died. You know, they outlived old old people outlived everybody else. So they were seen as sad and lonely. And that means that they were more uh, likely to make a pact with the devil. (laughs) I mean, there were some like steps that had to be taken to make this make sense, Mm -hmm. but they did it. Mm -hmm. So fear of witches also widespread at the time, and they thought that the devil gave witches magical powers, including the ability to cheat death. So if you lived to be an old age, that was enough for people to go, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, I thought so. Yep, by definition. She's a witch. I'm not a witch, I'm not. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. (laughs) Now there are those that dispute if this is actually a case of vampire exorcism. Um, It took me a minute to get there because I accidentally wrote exporting. Um, (laughs) Vampire exporting, totally different. It's a cottage industry, really. It's (laughs) very, very small demand, but on occasion. Including physical anthropologist Simona Minozzi at the University of Pisa in Italy. She talked with Live Science and said that the theory that this was an accused vampire is really, it's silly. The so-called shroud eaters, she said, were confined to East German region and not Italy. So it doesn't make any sense that the shroud eater would have been treated this way in Italy, that this this person who was thought to be a vampire would have been mouth-bricked. 
She also points to the fact that in the burial area, there were stones, bricks, and tiles in and about, and that sometimes things fall into the sometimes agape jaws of corpses. For instance, she noted a skeleton with a thigh bone in its mouth that was found in that same cemetery. Maybe they ran out of bricks. But Barini has commented on the quote-unquote unpleasantness of colleagues questioning the validity of his claims. But he points out that Venice was a crossroads during that period of time and that such legends could have very easily made it to Italy and circulated. Certainly possible. Especially if you're like... Wow, you've got a problem with vampires, too? I mean, that's that's the kind of here's, news that's going to spread. Here's what we do. Right. In my neighborhood, we brick their mouths. Either way, the final part of Barini's work included calling on 3D imaging experts to produce a digital model of the skull of this bricked-up woman. He then put markers where muscle attachments would have existed to reconstruct and rebuild the Venice vampire's face. And that result was the face of what he says is an ordinary woman. Not a witch. Not a witch. Not a vampire. Not a vampire. Just an ordinary woman. Just a regular old grains and veggies eating lady. (laughs) I bet her teeth were still beautiful, but with a grain diet. It'll probably be the other way around, wouldn't it? Well, you're going to have to edit a lot of shit out of this one. <laughs> I'm keeping that. No. I'm going to. No. I'm keeping all this, too. No, you're the not. The more you argue, the weirder it's going to be. A positional defiant much? I got most of my information from Live Science, from National Geographic, Atlas Obscura, and Reuters.com. Fascinating. Very interesting stuff. I had heard about the, you know, putting things in the in the mouths of suspected vampires as a deterrent. I also heard that uh, they would often remove the skull, the head, and put it between the knees of the suspected vampire as a deterrent. Okay, so if it's just not connected to your neck, then you can't go around vampiring? Feeling around for your head, and it's not easily found, and (laughs) it's down below your knees, so who's going to expect to find their head there? Right. We appreciate all the support that we get here from you uh, at the Box of Oddities. Um, It's been an incredible journey, and uh, we're sad to say this is our last episode. What is wrong with you? That's not true. (laughs) No, it's not true. But uh, a way you can help support us is by filling out a brief survey. (laughs) Now this sounds threatening. (laughs) It's not threatening. It's a very simple thing to do. It's a, a brief survey. And it helps support the show. You can go to Wondery.com slash survey, and we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to do that. You like this podcast? Be a shame if something were to happen to it. <laughs> Take this survey. We'll see you next time, maybe. <laughs> Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com
on Facebook at facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast, on Twitter at Box of Oddities, and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.